You see, they were, they were selling offerings. They were rejecting the offerings people brought, and, and they were seller, selling at a, at a, a much higher pra- price offerings that they had approved of, and essentially the money was going to some of the priests and to the high priest. They were fleecing God's people on something they had to do to worship God in that day and time, make offerings. And Jesus came in, exposed and overturned their corrupt religion. Jesus had previously told them, your worship is vain. Now think about how devastating that is. These are the professional leaders of religion. And Jesus says to them, your worship is vain. It's worthless. Jesus had called them children of hell. Jesus had called them a brood of vipers. Whenever they came and challenged the Son of God with their questions, he answered them in such a way that they could not answer him back. He had publicly made them look foolish. And do you know what? They wanted to kill him. That was their plan. Now look at Matthew 26, back to the beginning of this chapter. Matthew 26 and verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, so notice this is the religious leaders and the elders, the other leaders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him but they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people so you see what their problem is they don't want to stir up an uproar because there's a lot of people that regard Jesus as a prophet at least they don't want to cause a commotion so the desire is there to kill the son of God But the opportunity is not. So how's this going to come together for the the wicked Pharisees? Well, enter Judas. Judas comes to them. See, they're, they're wanting to kill Jesus, but Judas initiates meeting with them. They don't go to him. And that's what we see in this chapter, in this section, the tragedy that is Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. That's what this chapter is about, Matthew 26. It's about betrayal. Some form of the word betray appears ten times in this chapter. And here we see the heart of the betrayal. We see Judas betray Jesus. We see Judas betray Jesus beginning in verse 45. While they were still speaking. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about prayer. After he has prayed in the garden, while he's in the middle of speaking to them and instructing them about prayer, Judas came. And notice how the gospel writers identify Judas, one of the twelve. He's one of the inner circle. There are thousands of people that would surround themselves around Jesus, like at the Sermon on the Mount when he's preaching. Jesus is oftentimes surrounded by crowds who want to be healed or who want to be fed or whatever it may be. But he has this inner circle of 12. This is one of the 12 who's been with him now for a period of around three years. Judas, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd. Notice Matthew's description. It's a great crowd. This is a large amount of people with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So there's Judas working with the chief priests and the elders to get a crowd together, a mob, to seize the Son of God. Now, John's gospel tells us the Romans are involved here as well. And that would probably best explain their swords, because Roman soldiers carried swords, and we know what they used them for. In fact, the word John uses to describe the the Roman soldiers describes two to six hundred soldiers. You know, the Romans are very regimented in how many of them are together in in a group. That's the word John uses. This is two to six hundred Roman soldiers, probably six hundred 
And then the temple police, essentially their job is to make sure only supposedly clean people come into the temple. They would carry clubs. And that's who you see here. How sadly ironic. The, the, peop, the temple police are there to arrest the Son of God. See, Judas betray Jesus. Now, now Judas is opportunistic here. It's got to be done at night. It's got to be done away from the crowds in Jerusalem. And Judas knew this place. One of the other Gospels talks about them resorting to this place, to this garden. Judas knew the place. He knew where Jesus would be. And he knows to go there at night. And they're coming with torches and they're coming with lanterns. Judas had been there before. And look at what he says in verse 48. Now the betrayer, notice how he's referred to there, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. Judas is in control. I'll kiss him, I'll give you a signal and seize him. Incidentally, one of the things this shows you is the divinity of Jesus Christ was not outwardly recognizable by his appearance. Jesus does not have a halo. Jesus does not like have a glowing aura. Jesus is a man. He is truly man. In fact, if you had a photograph of the 12 apostles and Jesus, I don't think you could tell who Jesus was. Not from a photograph. So Judas gives them a signal. Judas is such an effective hypocrite. This is what an effective hypocrite he's been. For three years he's been with these other 12 men, or these other 11 men, the other disciples. They had no clue he was a betrayer. I mean, when, when Jesus spills it at the Lord's Supper, that one of you is going to betray me, they're all essentially asking Jesus, well, is it me? That's what an effective hypocrite Judas has been for the last three years. And, and here is the chief act of hypocrisy. Pretending to be something you're not, this kiss. He came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, as if everything is okay. And he kissed him, a sign of affection, usually reserved for close friends or family members. Kissed him. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. You see Judas betray Jesus. Now, Judas is probably the most incomprehensible person in the Bible. This is incomprehensible, isn't it, to have walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three years? Judas saw Jesus speak to the winds and the waves, and the waves obeyed him. Jesus saw G Judas saw Jesus heal any manner of sickness. A person with a withered limb, Jesus speaks to it, and it's made whole. Jesus commands fevers and they obey him. Judas saw this. Judas saw Jesus raise the dead. Speak to a dead body and the dead body obey. Judas saw Jesus cast out demons. There was a, a, a man oppressed by demons so bad, the Gadarene demoniac. He was living among the tombs, naked, and from our per perception, utterly insane. Jesus commands the demons. They submit to the Son of God. And the man is made right. Judas had seen that. Judas saw Jesus create food. There's only one being in the universe that can create something out of nothing. Jesus created food to feed the multitudes. And yet he's an unbeliever? After all of that? And not only an unbeliever, but a betrayer. 
I mean, being an unbeliever is a terrible reality, but to be a betrayer, and a betrayer of the Son of God, and think about it, for 30 pieces of silver, incidentally, that is a low sum of money. That is the price of a slave in the Old Testament. 30 pieces of silver is not like Judas is getting rich, rich off this. It's just seemingly incomprehensible, isn't it? Why did he do it? How could he remain an unbeliever like this? Well, because the scripture must be fulfilled. Look what Psalm 41 says. Psalm 41, beginning in verse 7. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him, and he will not rise again from where he lies. That's ironic, isn't it? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now look at John 13, beginning in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is why Judas does it. It's going to fulfill scripture. It's going to fulfill scripture, which is what this whole passage is about. Well, we see Judas' betrayal. Now pick it up, and you'll see Jesus submit to the soldiers in verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And now, Matthew doesn't tell us who this is. The other gospel accounts tell us, but we would know who it was anyway, wouldn't we? Peter. Peter has got a lot of bravado. Now keep in mind, earlier that night, Jesus told Peter, you're all going to deny me. And Peter, Peter emphatically says, no way. Even though all the rest deny you, I'll never deny you. So I think Peter here is probably acting out on that. I'm going to prove to Jesus I will not ever deny him or turn against him. So keep in mind what Peter and the others are thinking. Who do they think Jesus is? They rightly understand him to be the Christ. They're just a little bit ignorant in their understanding that the fact that the Christ must suffer and die. They've not picked that part up, even though Jesus has told them that multiple times. Now keep in mind who the Christ is. The Christ is the greatest king in history. One to whom God will give all authority and create a kingdom that will never end. This is why just a few hours before, James and John had had this argument about who could sit on the right hand and on the left side of Jesus in his coming kingdom. I mean, they were just talking about who are, who's going to get the places of prominence in the kingdom. So they understand the kingdom, they understand the sovereign king, and they understand his rule. And so Peter thinks, well, here's the time. Not to mention Jesus in John's gospel said, I am, and they all fell down at that display of divine power. So Peter takes his sword out, attacks the guy, and you see here that Peter probably would be better off sticking with casting nets rather than swinging swords because uh, essentially you use a, a sword to deal a death blow and uh, you see Peter's ineptness in cutting off the guy's ear. And then Jesus heals him, and look what Jesus says to Peter. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's a, that's a sentence that a lot of people have used to support pacifism, but that's not at all what it means here. Essentially what Jesus is quoting here when he says, all who take the sword will perish by the sword, is he's, quoting, he's referencing Roman law. Because in Roman law, if you wield a sword against a Roman soldier, it is a death penalty. You take up the sword against a Roman soldier, they take the sword to you. And Jesus is saying, Peter, what you're doing is going to bring death upon you. 
put it up. And not only that, but more importantly, look at verse 53. Only Matthew records this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? What Jesus is essentially saying here is, Peter, I don't need your help with these soldiers. Jesus is the Son of God. He can appeal to his Father, and his Father can send him 12 legions of angels. That would be 72,000 angels. In the Old Testament, one angel kills over 100,000 people. There's an instance in the Old Testament where one angel kills 185,000 people. And Jesus says, I can appeal to my Father, and he will send me legions, legions of angels. The point is, Jesus' point is, I don't need your help with these soldiers. Jesus, John tells us, is laying his life down willingly. He's not being, he is being taken away, but he's allowing it to happen because he wants to lay down his life because that's the means by which people will be saved. Nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down. And you see him submit to the soldiers. Look what he goes on to say in verse 54, and here's the key. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I could escape this if I wanted to, but then how would the scripture be fulfilled? And notice his language, it must be so. This is the view of the Son of God about the permanence and place of scripture in the role of human history. It must be so. What God has said will come about. What God has promised will come about. It must be so. Now, that's Jesus' submission to the crowds. Now we see the guilt of the soldiers. Look at verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Now, friends, here's, you see this amazing reality. The scripture must be fulfilled. It must be done. But notice Jesus indicts the guilt of these soldiers. And he indicts their inconsistency. The point here is, Jesus has not been acting like a criminal. Jesus has been publicly teaching in the temple Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And this is Thursday night. And, and the, the idea is, why didn't you arrest me then? A criminal hides and keeps a low profile. Jesus has been in the temple teaching. He exposes their inconsistency. And he exposes their sin for coming to seize an innocent man. By the way, note the calmness of Jesus the Lord in this incredibly tense circumstance. A man just, one of Jesus' disciples just drew a sword, cut a man's ear off, a whole mob is here. Jesus has just been betrayed by one of his own, and he is in total command of the situation. Marvel. Marvel at the Son of God. How amazing he is. How glorious he is. The guilt of the soldiers is exposed. And then we see finally again the reason this happened. Verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Matthew is doing what he's been doing through all of his gospel. He's been showing you that what Jesus does is in accord with the word of God. That the word of God is God's authority. It's the way God has revealed himself, and God will operate according to his will and his word. And what Matthew's been doing is he has been giving you evidence after evidence that Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. And that's what this is all about. This betrayal, this arrest, 
It's about a fulfillment of the word of God. And the point of that is further proof that Jesus is the Christ. So we today should recognize this, that Jesus is the long-anticipated king sent from God to save his people from their sins. Here's, here's evidence of it, compounding evidence of it, that this, isn't, this is not just another criminal or a, just a religious conspiracy against a guy they don't like, like they had killed all the prophets before him, or many of them. Now, this is fundamentally different. How do you explain one of his own betraying him for a mere 30 pieces of silver? This must fulfill the scripture. And incidentally, the Old Testament talks specifically about those 30 pieces of silver. It's an amazing reality, this word of God that we have, the Bible. And you see, Jesus operates in such a way that fulfills the Scripture. It's further proof Jesus is the Christ. That's why Matthew has this here. It's what he's been doing all through his gospel. Matthew's a Jew. He's a, he's a tax collector. He's a detail guy. And he wants to show you evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And friends, what an amazing evidence it is if you do the study and if you do the work. If you study the validity of the Bible, and in fact, if you, if you subject the Bible to scrutiny, like you might subject another historical work, I believe that you will only come away more convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. When you look at Old Testament prophecies specifically fulfilled by events in the life of Jesus, it's just astounding the detail in which Jesus, the Son of God, fulfills the Word of God. And you know the main point of that? The main point of that, look at what John says. We've already looked at this verse 1. Now we'll look at it in fuller context. John 13, 18, and 19. John 13, 18, and 19. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. Notice that. It's a certainty. It's not the Scripture might be fulfilled, as if maybe something God said will, come, will not happen. No, the Scripture must be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is why Judas betrays him. Verse 19. I am telling you this, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Which is John's main theme. I want you to believe. I want you to believe in the Son of God. And here's reasons to believe. Jesus is the one who fulfills Scripture. So Luke 24 tells us a, an account that isn't recorded anywhere else in the Bible. We call it the road to Emmaus. And there are two disciples there, uh, not two of the twelve, but two followers of Jesus. And these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're really downcast. It's like they're leaving the city. Jesus has been crucified. They haven't heard about the resurrection yet, or they, they essentially haven't believed it at least. And they're on the road and they're leaving, and, and Jesus appears to them and intentionally does not reveal to them that he is the Lord. And so he begins entering into conversation with them. One of, one of the things they say as they're downcast is, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he'd be the one. But, but again, he, was be he, he got arrested and he got crucified. And then you know what Jesus does? He takes the word of God and he goes through the Psalms, the law and the prophets, and shows them the things that must take place in the life of the Christ, part of which is suffering. And then he opens their eyes to see the scripture and his identity, 
But what Jesus did there was what Matthew is doing here. He wanted them to believe in Christ, in the Lord, through what they see in the Word of God. And friends, we should do the same. We should do the same. Well, after this betrayal and arrest, it's just going to be a few hours and Jesus is going to be dead. He'll be dead by the afternoon of the next day. It happens quick. He's betrayed and arrested at night. He'll be tried at night illegally, which we'll talk about Lord willing next time. He'll be on the cross the next day and he'll be dead by the afternoon. And look at what happens with the disciples here. They all left him and fled, as they often do. They don't come off looking like heroes. Friends, in this account, only Jesus emerges as the one who is faithful. It's one of the things the Bible consistently shows us about Jesus. Friends, you think about your own life. I mean, how how are you going to emerge from your life and all the the things you've been through and the sins you've committed? You're not going to ever emerge the hero. This is why Jesus came and lived a perfect life. All the disciples fled. He came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead that we might be saved and forgiven. Because, friends, that's what we need. We need forgiveness from the Lord. I mean, again, one of the interesting things to do in these accounts is think, okay, well, who would I be in in these accounts? And we would never be like Jesus because we're not holy like him. Friends, this is why we need his forgiveness. This is why we need him so much. This is where the good news of the gospel comes in and why he came. So that we could be forgiven through his sacrifice. That's good news for you. And it's so simple. It's so simple. It's to trust him. That you trust Jesus and not yourself. You depend on Jesus to bring you to God. He came, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And the way he brings you to God is through your trusting him to get you there. You don't get there on your own. You trust Jesus to get you there. You try to get there on your own, you'll be like the disciples who scatter and flee. They had also walked with him for three years. So friends, trust the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, and we see that confirmed by the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the clarity of your word, its power. What it says must be so. Thank you for the Son of God and for his obedience, his faithfulness, his example, his glory, his majesty. His goodness and grace to die for us sinners. Praise your name. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, now help us to sing and resolve to worship you for you are worthy. Christ is highly exalted over all. Given a name that is greater, higher than any other name. The name to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Lord, help us to do that now. I pray we'd be trusting him and him alone. And God, we'd rejoice in his example, even though betrayed, he does your will. And he did it so, Lord, we could be forgiven. We thank you and praise your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. You obey the Lord today as we sing together. My hope is built on nothing less Than Jesus' blood and righteousness 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love and through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. Amen, friends. So one of, the, one of the blessings that we have at our church is we have faithful men, committed men who want to serve the church as deacons. Deacons serve. They do a variety of things for our church. And we vote to affirm them as deacons. And we're going to do that. It's October 28th. Is that correct? I'm bad with dates. October 28th, we're going to vote on Bruce Lacey. Jonathan Nave and Nathan Gill. So I needed to let you know that, what a joy that will be. Michael, dismiss us in prayer, please. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. Thank you for bringing about our salvation through Christ, making it possible that we can be forgiven and be given righteousness um, in a way that's consistent with your holiness and your character and, and also with your mercy. You are so kind to us. Help us remember that and glory in it. Help it to motivate us to live for you by the power of the Spirit that dwells in us if we are truly Christ followers. Um, we do pray for those who are standing in a position of not following you. God, that they would be, you would draw them to yourself and they would uh, love the gospel and they would love Christ and submit to what you say. Help us live for your glory. Uh, and help us do all things uh, for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.